Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4. As you could tell from that background music there, we're going to be looking at a fairly ominous section of Scripture where our spiritual adversary, the devil, comes and tempts Jesus Christ. I want to share a story as we begin this morning. In the, in the late 1880s, the British Empire was undertaking a massive railway project across Africa, uh, building up the infrastructure of many of those African nations. And in the 1880s, they were building a railway through the nation of Kenya. But in 1889, the construction ground to a halt as over the course of 10 months, the British and Indian workers who were building this railway were mercilessly picked apart by two man-eating lions who attacked the workers on the railway over the course of 10 months. Two Savo lions, as they were called, they were from the district of Savo in Kenya, during the night would sneak into the camp where the Indian and British workers were living near the railway tracks they were building, and they would sneak into the tents and rip out workers and take them off to devour them. And this went on for over 10 months. It's estimated that upwards of 135 people were killed by these two man-eating lions before the man in the screen here, the British Colonel John Patterson, finally shot both of the lions to death after stalking them for weeks and weeks, trying to put an end to the killing. The one lion that they found was over nine feet long, nine feet, eight inches long. Massive man-eating lions. It's interesting, you can go to the Field Museum in Chicago and actually see they have the two Savo lions stuffed there on display in the Field Museum of Chicago. I was reading this week, uh, in the last decade, scientists have actually taken scrapings of the teeth of the stuffed lions in the field museum and they've genetically identified the human remains of 35 victims of the Savo lions. But can you imagine the terror of being one of the workers in this British rail camp as over the course of 10 months each night, night after night, the lions came and they had built fences to keep them out and the lions would jump the fences they built massive bonfires to try to scare the, scare the lions away, and nothing stopped them. The lions kept coming, and they kept stalking, and they kept killing, until finally Colonel Patterson was able to put it to an end. But as interesting as I was thinking about this story this week, it reminded me of the spiritual adversary that we're up against as followers of Jesus Christ, our enemy, the devil, who we're going to come across this morning for the first time in the New Testament in our passage here in Luke chapter 4. The New Testament speaks quite a bit about the devil, but uh, today is the first time he actually comes on the scene where we begin to learn more about his schemes and strategies and how he seeks to attack us. And as the book of First Peter tells us, just like the Savo man-eaters, Peter warns, be self-controlled and alert. Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. That's how our enemy works, friends. He's a man-eater. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. And this morning, we're going to look at 
the reality of our spiritual adversary, the devil. And we're going to see his tactics. We're going to see his targets and how he seeks to take us down through the process of temptation. But there's also hope as we face our adversary because as we're going to see through the lesson of our Lord Jesus Christ this morning, we can stand up against the temptations of the adversary. We do not have to succumb and fall to our great enemy. In fact, we have victory against our enemy because of Jesus Christ. And that's the good news. This is really incredible as we've been studying the book of Luke. I want you to just, I just want to share that. I mean, think about what we've seen here so far in recent weeks as we've gone through the book of Luke. We've seen history, right? Luke, as you know, the doctor, the meticulous historian, he's revealed to us accurate history that we can verify, that we can trust. We've seen Bible prophecy where Luke has referred to God's fulfillment of prophecies from hundreds of years earlier. Last week, we looked at theology. We saw Luke highlight the fact that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. And now today, friends, we're going to deal with some very practical and relevant teaching for our lives today. How we can stand up against the reality of our adversary and face down his temptation. I mean, it's incredible as you study the word of God, what God unveils to us. History, prophecy, theology, and practical daily living skills, daily living principles to resist our enemy. Well, as we think about this figure who comes on the scene this morning in our passage, the devil, you know, who is the enemy? We, we're not going to take a lot of time this morning to do a full theological exploration of the devil, but it's important to have a little background as we understand who it is that Jesus is facing today here in Luke chapter 4. The devil is actually a Greek word. It's the word diablos. And the word devil means adversary or accuser. And friends, that's who Satan is. That's who the devil is. He's our adversary. He seeks to oppose God's people. He seeks to oppose the work of God in this world. And so he's our adversary, but he's also our accuser. And he's our accuser in that he stands before God and he puts blame on us for our sins. And he accuses us before the Lord for our sins and shortcomings against the will of God. And the good news, as we talked about last week, because of Jesus, the perfect man, the perfect son of God, the perfect man of God, the perfect lamb of God, right? Because Jesus died to be our substitute, we don't have to fear the accuser. We don't have to fear the threats of the accuser. We have one who has overcome the accuser. But that's what Satan does. Satan throughout Scripture, the devil throughout Scripture is known by a number of names, Satan, Lucifer, Beelzebub. But it's all the same figure. Who was Satan? Who is Satan? Satan was once an angel of God. We don't know a lot about Satan. But we do know that he was once an angel of God who fell from his place in glory in the presence of God. And he fell because of his pride. Some people speculate that maybe he was the most beautiful of God's angels. Maybe he was one of the most powerful of God's angels. We don't know those things specifically, but we do know because of his pride, Satan at one time sought to elevate himself to a position in equality with God. And if you read in Isaiah 14, 12 through 15, you can read the account of how Satan rose in his pride and was ultimately cast out of heaven by God. 
Now, it's important to understand some basics about our adversary, the devil. Number one, he is not omnipotent. Okay? He is not all-powerful. That's what the word omnipotent means. Okay? He is not omniscient. He does not know all things. And he is not omnipresent. He is not everywhere at once. So, in other words, Satan in no way is like our God. Satan is no way like the king of the universe who created all things. Satan is like you and I, creation. Okay? God is the creator. Satan, the devil, is one of God's created beings just like you and I. So he is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. And he is not everywhere at the same time. He's limited. And our God rules and reigns and has all power and authority over our spiritual adversary, the devil. That's an important thing to understand, friends, because I run into a lot of people who think that, you know, God and Satan are somehow equals. By no means whatsoever are they equals. God is absolutely all powerful and has all authority over our enemy, the devil. Not only that, but Satan, friends, has already been defeated at the cross of Jesus Christ. Satan has been defeated at the cross and his days are numbered. It's sort of like, remember back in World War II in 1944 when D-Day took place. When the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy and France, the Nazi regime was essentially over at that point. And for the next 11 months, the Allied forces were basically doing mop-up work as they went through and cleaned up the remnants of the Nazis throughout Europe until Victory Europe Day in 1945, or late 1944. So friends, what you need to understand is, just like in World War II, some of the heaviest fighting took place after D-Day. And in the same way, friends, we can expect the enemy to be on the attack in a major way in this day and age as we approach the end times, whenever the second coming of Christ might be. Satan knows, friends, that his days are numbered. He knows that he has been defeated by the cross of Jesus Christ. And so he is doing everything he can in the remaining time that he has to oppose you, to oppose God's work in this world, and to thwart God's plans to try to reach as many people as possible with the good news of Jesus Christ. So yes, is our enemy like a roaring lion who prowls around looking for someone to devour? Absolutely he is, and he's hungry. And he's hungry because he knows his time is up. In fact, in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, we read in Revelation 20.10 that one day God is going to rid the cosmos of Satan for all of eternity. Satan is going to be cast into the lake of fire for all of eternity. Never again to harass or harm God's people. So we need to understand this about our enemy. We do have a very real enemy. He is powerful. He is out to get you. He is out to oppose the work of God in this world. But he is not all-powerful. He is not all-knowing. He is not omnipresent. He has no authority over the God we serve. He's been defeated by Jesus Christ at the cross. And our hope is in knowing that Jesus is going to return one day and banish him for all of eternity. We have the victory in Jesus Christ over our enemy. But again, the enemy is very real, and he's on the prowl. And we're going to see here in our passage today in Luke chapter 4 the tactics of the enemy 
and the targets of the enemy. Friends, how is the enemy seeking to take us down? Well, we're going to see very real concrete examples in our passage today in how he sought to take down Jesus Christ. Because as we're going to see this morning, Satan's schemes haven't changed at all. And so Jesus is going to not only show us the reality of how Satan seeks to tempt us and take us down, but Jesus is also going to give us some very practical application for how we can stand and resist the enemy. So let's take a look together at Luke chapter 4. We're going to read verses 1 through 13, and then I want to look again this morning at the enemy's tactics, the enemy's targets, and our counterattack as believers, how we can stand up against the enemy. Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Now I want you to keep your Bibles open this morning because we're going to refer back to this passage a number of times as we look at how our adversary seeks to attack us today. And we're going to learn some lessons from the example of Jesus here. The first thing I want to highlight for us are the enemy's tactics against us. The enemy's tactics against us. And in verses 1 through 2 in particular, we see some of the primary tactics that Satan uses in his attempts to take down God's people. The first thing we notice here is that Satan attacks even when we're walking with God. Friends, even when you're walking closely in a relationship with the Lord, Satan will attack you. In fact, you can expect his attacks, especially when you're walking with the Lord. You know, Satan's not concerned about the spiritual couch potato, right? He's concerned about the person who is walking and on fire for God and is serving the Lord and living for the Lord. That's the guy, the guy on the front lines who Satan's going to seek to go after. Notice here in verse 1, it says that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He had just come out of this incredible experience at his baptism where he was affirmed by the triune Godhead as the Son of God, the Messiah. And so he walks full of the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit who leads him into the wilderness. And why does he go into the wilderness led by the Holy Spirit? He's there for 40 days fasting, having sweet communion with the Lord, praying and preparing himself for the ministry he's about to undertake. And notice here, friends, even in this close and intimate walk with God, Satan comes to tempt Jesus. 
So just know that, believers, as as followers of Jesus, if you're walking with God, especially if you're walking with God, you're going to be a target. Satan's going to seek to take you down. Satan also attacks persistently. We read here in Luke 1 and 2 that Satan's temptations of Jesus took place over 40 days. Over 40 days. In other words, you might overcome the victory this afternoon, but don't sit on your laurels because the enemy will keep coming and he'll keep coming and he'll keep coming because he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. You got to stay on guard, friends. You got to stay on guard. He attacks persistently. The third thing we see here in verses one through two is that Satan, this is key, friends. Listen to this. Satan will seek to attack you when you are most vulnerable. The Bible says here that after 40 days of fasting, In the harsh wilderness of Judea, Jesus was very hungry. And he was probably very tired. And he was probably very dirty and stinky and all of that. And Satan came to Jesus in that moment of his weakness, his physical weakness. And I can tell you from my own personal experience, when does Satan come and tempt me the most? He comes and tempts me when I'm hungry (laughs) and when I'm tired, when I'm hurting emotionally, spiritually. See, when Satan sees a wounded believer in whatever way, it's like blood in the water. It's like blood in the water. So just know that, okay? I'm not saying all this to scare you. I'm saying this to help you recognize, look at when I'm vulnerable, when I'm hurting for whatever reason, emotionally, when I've been wounded by somebody, when I'm, when I'm discouraged by what's going on in my life, when I'm, when I'm hungry and tired and beaten down. Friends, that is when you need to most keep your guard up because that is like blood in the water for the enemy. He's going to be looking for you then. In those moments of weakness, that's how the enemy works. That's his tactics. What about his targets? Now, here's where this passage gets very practical for us because in Luke 4 here, we see in the temptations of Jesus three ways that Satan sought to take Jesus down. But I want you to notice something, friends, as we look at this passage this morning. Satan's schemes haven't changed at all. Satan's schemes haven't changed in thousands of years, all right? In fact, as we look at this passage this morning in Jesus' temptations, friends, do we not hear the echoes of Eden, the Garden of Eden? Do you remember the very first temptation that led to the fall of humanity, the fall of Adam and Eve? What did Satan say to Adam and Eve? Did God really say? Did God really say? In other words, can you really believe what God said? Can you really trust what God said? Is that really what God told you? And here he comes to Jesus in the very same way. If you are the son of God, in other words, are you really sure about that? Do you really believe that? Right? Satan's schemes haven't changed from the very beginning. He seeks to sow seeds of doubt in our lives about what is true. He seeks to get us to question God's revealed truth that God says we need to trust that will lead us to life and life to the full. But Satan begins to sow seeds of doubt. Not only do we see these parallels with Eden here in Jesus' temptations, but we also see how Satan's schemes haven't changed in that Satan uses the very same tactics that he did, not only just against Adam and Eve here, but also the same tactics that he used against Israel during their wandering in the wilderness. 
Friends, remember when God led the children out of Egypt in the Exodus, and then they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years? And over the course of 40 years, we saw Satan repeatedly seek to derail God's plans for his chosen people by leading the Israelites into temptation. And do you recall the three ways that, that Israel fell into temptation during their wandering in the wilderness? Three ways, grumbling for bread, grumbling for bread, continually flirting with idolatry, and putting God to the test. Grumbling for bread, flirting with idolatry, putting God to the test. Friends, you need to understand this, friends. This is no coincidence at all here that we see these very same attacks against Jesus here in Luke chapter 4. Satan's schemes haven't changed. And if you want to know how Satan's going to try to attack you, okay, this is the blueprint right here. This is how Satan is going to try to attack you. It's, his schemes haven't changed in thousands of years. What's Satan's blueprint for attack? Let's, let's look at each of these three ways that... Satan came against Christ because these are the same ways that he's going to come against you. Number one, Satan tempts us with our physical and material needs. In other words, will we trust God to provide for us? Will we trust God to provide for us? Satan came to Jesus in verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. What's the temptation here, friends? The temptation here is to make bread when God hasn't seen fit to provide it. God led Jesus into the wilderness. And God asked Jesus to trust him to provide for him during that time. But Satan says, you're hungry. Make some bread when God hasn't seen fit to provide it. You see, Satan understood that Jesus was the Son of God. And so he tempted him to miraculously provide for his own physical needs apart from trusting God to provide. Friends, this isn't a challenge to Jesus to be strong. Okay, hey, hey, prove you can turn rocks into bread. That's not what Satan's trying to test Jesus in doing. This is a challenge to Jesus to be independent to go his own way, to do something apart from the will of his father, to trust in material things instead of his heavenly father to provide for him. And friends, isn't this the same way that Satan tempts us so often? To trust in material things over our father in heaven who says he cares about us, who's going to be our provider, and yet Satan seeks to discourage us and burden us with all of the things of this material world, money and possessions and bills. And, and he does all this to get us to take our eyes off of God, who says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you. Now, I want you to understand something here in this temptation. This temptation is a little bit different for us than it was for Jesus. Okay? You see, unlike Jesus, we can't turn rocks into bread. So that's not our temptation, but here's what we can do. We can turn our bread into rocks. And by bread, I'm talking about your dough, your cash. And we can quickly turn our bread into rocks. How does that work? We'll take a look at what Matthew tells us. 
Matthew six nineteen through 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And I think one of the ways that Satan most tempts us is to put our priorities on our stuff and our money and our material things instead of investing them in what is of eternal value in giving them to the cause of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ, things that have eternal value. And I run into so many people, this is a temptation for myself included, where we're so tempted to, to hold on so tightly to our physical material stuff because I, I don't really know if I can trust God to provide for me to take care of that next bill that's coming next, next month. So I'm just going to hoard my stuff instead of giving to the mission that God has put in front of me that God has called us to, to invest in the things of eternity. And I think this is one of the common temptations that many of us wrestle with. It's not about turning rocks into bread. It's about our bread turning into rocks. And that's what's happening, friends. When you hoard your material stuff instead of giving it to the Lord, right? What, you, what are you doing? You're like, like the moth and the rust and the vermin will come in and they'll find their way into your storage unit and they'll tear all that junk up and it's ultimately going to all rust and decay in the end anyway. It's of no lasting value, right? The same thing happens when we hoard our money, when we keep it to ourselves. Friends, you're never going to see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You know what I'm saying? God says invest in things of eternity and Satan comes and says, no, you can't really do that. If you, if you invest in the things of eternity, what, what, about, what about all the stuff you've got to take care of here and now, right? And see, this is the temptation. It's getting us to take our eyes off of God, who is our provider, and trust in our own means as our source of security. So this is one of the ways that Satan seeks to tempt us. The second thing we see here in the story of Luke 4, Satan tempts us with the desires of the flesh, with idolatry. And the question here is, will we worship God alone? Look at how Satan comes to Jesus in the second temptation. In verse 5, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor, for it has all been given to me. And I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, Jesus, it will all be yours. What is the temptation here, friends? Satan is saying you can become the king without the cross. You can become the king without the cross. Satan's offering Jesus all the pleasures of royalty. But understand this, friends, if he takes them, he's not really the one who's on the throne. Satan is. Satan says to Jesus, worship me, bow down to me, and all this is yours. But what Satan's really asking Jesus to do is to abandon his loyalty to his Father in heaven. And abandon the mission that God has sent him to accomplish in this world, the salvation of humanity. And friends, here is the lie in idolatry every single time. What is idolatry? Idolatry is simply exchanging the worship of God for the worship of other things. The worship of idols, false gods. It can be money, it can be your hobby, it can be your job, it can be your family. Idolatry can be anything that you put in your life, in priority, above your relationship with God. And the lie of idolatry, friends, is that we are in control. The lie of idolatry is that we get to choose how we want to fulfill our desires. 
But the problem is, when we buy into that lie, it's not you who's really in control. It's the enemy who's in control. Satan loves it when you make that exchange. You know, you, you don't even have to get God out of your life altogether. You know, you just, just, you know, that new fishing boat you want. Just put that as your priority, for, even just for a few months, you know, and just put God down a little bit lower. And Satan loves that because anytime we trade God for anything else, even good things like family and church, anytime we put anything above our relationship with our heavenly father, Satan is the one who's really behind that. That's the lie of idolatry. The third thing we see here in Satan's temptations of Jesus, Satan tempts us with questions about God's faithfulness. Will we trust God's sovereignty? Look at this one in verse 9. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift, up, lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a, so, a stone. What's the temptation here? Demand that God prove his love. And this was a very deceitful temptation because here Satan actually quotes scripture. Satan quotes from Psalm 91, 11 through 12, which is a passage that speaks of God's faithfulness and his care for his people. And so Satan essentially says to Jesus, if you're so committed to obeying God's word, look, you're quoting all this scripture at me. All right, well, I can quote scripture too. Jesus, you're so faithful at, at, at following the word of God. Well, obey this one then. Satan says, just jump. Just jump. But look at this. Just jump, Jesus, and the whole world will see who you really are. If you jump from the temple, and if this Bible verse is true, God's going to send his angels, and he's going to pick you up. Your foot will not hit the stones, and God will lift you up, and the whole world, Jesus, will see that you really are the Messiah. Wow. What a deceitful temptation. Clothed in Scripture, promising a divine outcome. But friends, even the best goals don't justify operating outside of God's will for our lives. You see, God did have a plan to save his son, but not like that. Putting God to the test really displays a lack of faith in God's perfect will. Instead of saying, I trust you, Lord, we say, prove it. In other words, God, if you really love me, you'll do this. How many of you ever tested God like that? You know, God, if you really love me, you'd do this for me. Man, I, I remember so many times in my life, you know, you, as a young man, you know, God, if you really love me, you're going to make that girl fall in love me, with me, right? Or God, if you really love me, you're going you're to help provide the, the means I need to, to cover my expenses right now. Or this one, God, if you really love me, you would save my wife from breast cancer. And every time we test God in that way, we are really saying to him, Lord, I don't really trust your sovereign plan for my life. So I'm going to ask you to prove it to me. Now, I want you to notice something, friends. In every single one of these temptations, every single one of them is fundamentally about questioning God's goodness and faithfulness. Will God really provide? Will God really give you what you need? Will God really take care of you? And again, isn't this exactly what Satan did with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? 
Did God really say, oh, go ahead, just eat the fruit. You can become like God yourself. It's all about questioning God's goodness, questioning his faithfulness, questioning his trustworthiness, and that's how Satan is going to seek to attack you, friends. Every single temptation is all about that. Can you really trust God? Is he really good enough? Is he really faithful? That's the bottom line in every temptation. What is our defense? What is our defense? The good news is the Bible says we can stand against temptation. 1 Corinthians 10.13, the Apostle Paul says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way, a way out so that you can stand up under it. You don't have to succumb to temptation, friends. God will give you a way to stand up against it. And here in Jesus' example in Luke 4, we see three ways that Jesus stood against temptation that can be a real encouragement for us. I call them the three D's of spiritual warfare. Discern, defend, and depend. The first one, discern. How do we stand against the enemy? Number one, we need to discern. We need to distinguish the voice of the enemy from the voice of God. And this is not as easy as it might sound because sometimes the enemy's lies sound very attractive. For example, you deserve to be happy. You know, God wants you to be happy. I I was talking to a guy just recently. He was saying to me, he was saying, this this is how deceptive this goes. He comes to me, he says, Jason, you know, God wants me to be happy. I, I deserve to be happy. God wants my happiness. And so, Jason, I would be so much happier in a different marriage. What a lie. But sadly, many people respond to these temptations. They say, wow, that's right. God does want me to be happy. Friends, let me tell you something. God wants you to be happy, but he is far more concerned with you being holy. And one of our enemy's primary tactics is to try and derail us from pursuing holiness, from aligning our lives with God's will for us. And he derails us in our pursuit of holiness by getting us to believe a lie about where our true joy is found. True joy is found in walking with the Lord, following his will faithfully, even when it's tough. But Satan will come and he will lie, you about where true joy, where, lie to you about where true joy is found. Look what Jesus says about the devil. John eight forty four. The devil is a liar and he is the father of lies. That's his nature, friends. Jesus in another place says when he speaks, he lies because that's his native tongue. Not only that, Jesus says his goal, John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. So every time Satan comes and he speaks to you, you need to know he is lying to you and he is lying to you because he wants to destroy your life. That's all he wants to do. He's our adversary who seeks to oppose us and oppose God's plans for our lives. Now, this, friends, might be the most important point you hear all morning. If you ever sense God leading you to do something that blatantly violates his revealed truth in Scripture, it is not really God who's leading you. God will not contradict himself. When God has revealed truth to us about his will for our lives, 
His truth is timeless and it's consistent and he will never contradict himself. So how do we discern the truth of God from the lies of the enemy? Friends, discernment comes from knowing the real thing so well that you'll recognize the counterfeits. You want to know how the Secret Service, the Secret Service, they don't only just protect the president, but they're also in charge of protecting the monetary system here in America against counterfeits. You know how the Secret Service is trained to identify counterfeits? When new agents join the Secret Service, they put them in a room for a week straight where all they do for eight hours a day is handle freshly printed new U.S. currency. That's all they do for eight hours a day. They touch it, they feel it, they smell it. All they do is touch real money for eight hours a day. Friends, you want to know something? After a week of doing nothing but handling the real thing, as soon as a counterfeit crosses their fingertips, they can recognize it immediately because they know the real thing so well. Friends, in the same way, we need to know the Word of God. We need to be in the Word of God. We need to know the real thing so well that when the enemy speaks his lies, we will recognize them immediately. And this leads me to point number two. Not only do we need to discern, we need to defend. We need to defend ourselves against the enemy. And how do we do that? We do it the same way Jesus did, by wielding the truths of Scripture as our defense. The Bible is the sword of the Spirit. Jesus recognized the lies of the enemy, but then he fought them off with Scripture. Look what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is what? The word of God, friends. Our weapon, the sword of the Spirit, our weapon against our adversary is the word of God. Here's the deal. Satan is truly a formidable adversary. Okay, He will take you down. He can take you down. He's a formidable foe. But every trick and tactic at his disposal cannot stand up against the word of God. The sword of the spirit. It's, it, it reminds me of that old Crocodile Dundee movie. Remember Crocodile Dundee from Australia? He's walking through the streets of New York and this, this gangbanger comes up to him and pulls out a switchblade. You know, give me your wallet. Crocodile Dundee says, that's not a knife. That's a knife, right? And he pulls out this big machete, right? Friends, when Satan comes and he lies to you, and he might even use the word of God to lie to you, that's not a knife. That's a knife. I got the sword of the Spirit. And look at Jesus' response. In each of the three temptations, he responded to the devil by quoting Scripture. But notice, it wasn't any scripture, just any scripture. Jesus quoted from the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 8.3, Deuteronomy 6.13, Deuteronomy 6.16. The very words God had given the Israelites to guide them in the wilderness and to guide them into a right relationship with God. And the very same words that the Israelites failed to hold fast to when they faced their own temptations from the enemy. So get what's going on here, right? God had given the Israelites his truth, but they failed to hold fast to his truth. And so when the enemy came and said, is God really going to feed you? They started grumbling for bread. They didn't trust God's promises. Can you really trust God? Maybe you should go back to the gods of Egypt. They didn't trust God's promises. They fell to the temptation of idolatry. 
Satan gets them to put God to the test. Every single time they fail to hold fast to the truths that God had given them. So what is going on here is what Jesus is doing in his response to Satan, where Israel failed to trust the word of God and thereby succumb to the enemy's temptations. Jesus wins the victory by wielding the word of God. Friends, there's a lesson there for us. When you hold fast to the word, you're going to stand strong. When you're not holding fast to the word, you're going to be easy prey. Satan hates the word of God. Why does he hate it? He hates it because it is the word of God. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture has been inspired by God. He hates it because he has no power or authority over it. He hates it because it exposes his deceitful schemes. And he hates it because it liberates us from our bondage to his lies. And so, friends, this is why we need to be in the word. We need to know the word. We need to hold fast to the word. So let me ask you this morning, are you wielding your sword? Are you proficient with it? I, I tell you what, it, it, if you're one of those Christians who's got your Bible sitting on your shelves and you never pick it up, or maybe you just pick it up to carry it to church on a Sunday morning, and that's, you, are, you are going down, I'm just telling you. You're like, you're like one of those British and Indian workers walking through the deserts of Kenya with nothing, no weapon, no sword, and there is a roaring lion coming to take you on. What are you going to do? Are you kidding me? You're easy prey. Wield your sword. Know your sword. And Satan cannot stand against you when you have the power of the sword of the Spirit at your disposal. And this leads me to our third and final point this morning. We stand against the enemy by depending. We discern, we defend, and then we depend. We trust and believe that God's way is best. What is dependence on God, friends? It's an unswerving belief that God is sovereign, that he has a loving plan for your life, and in trusting in him in all things, you will find life and life to the full. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. and all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. Now, friends, here's the deal. Depending on God isn't a guarantee that life will be free of trials and tribulations. Okay, look at the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit led Jesus to the cross. But I'll tell you something, friends. Sometimes in God's sovereign plan, the cross is best. God has a plan and purpose for everything in our lives, even when he leads us into the wilderness. A couple years ago, a friend of mine named Kenneth Bay was released from a prison labor camp in North Korea. Eight years ago, my father and I were teaching in Dandong, China with Kenneth Bay. He was in charge of the Youth with a Mission missionary base in Dandong, China on the border of North Korea. Five years ago, Kenneth was arrested behind the border of North Korea and charged with a conspiracy to try to bring down the North Korean government because he was leading prayer tours into the country, taking groups of Christians to pray for North Korea. They sentenced him to 15 years of hard labor in an isolated North Korean prison camp. Just two years ago, Kenneth was miraculously released. They let him, they let him free. 
And it was very interesting. Monday night, I'm watching the National Geographic channel, and I turned on Morgan Freeman's show, The Story of God. You guys ever seen Morgan Freeman's show, The Story of God? I'd never watched it before. He basically talks about different religions and things around the world. And, and on Monday night, he's interviewing my buddy, Kenneth Bay. I never watched it. God just kind of inspired me to turn it on. And Kenneth told his story of sitting in the North Korean prisons, wondering, God, where are you? God, I, I came here to serve you. And he told how he, when he was first arrested, was standing in this prison camp, and the North Korean guards would have an AK-47 pointed at his head, and they said, if you sit down, if you move, we are going to shoot you. And he stood solitary in a cell with a guard and a gun at his head for hours and hours, for days on end. He didn't know how long he had been standing. He just knew he couldn't move, and he was, all he could think of was, God, where are you? What are you doing? Lord, I came, I'm your servant, and, and, and this is where you've led me? On the show on Monday night, Kenneth Bay said that as he was standing in that prison cell with the gun at his head, he said he felt his hand start to tingle. His left hand became very warm. A sensation came across him, and he looked down, and his hand was glittering like gold. And he heard a voice whisper in his ear, Kenneth, you are not standing alone. The Holy Spirit is standing with you. Kenneth said it gave him such courage, such hope, such joy that he just started beaming this radiant smile. The North Korean guards got so ticked off at him, they told him to stop smiling, but he couldn't stop smiling because he knew the Holy Spirit was standing right there with him. The guards got so upset, they finally just said, fine, go lay down, and they let him go sit down. But friends, can you imagine that? Here's this guy thinking he's spending the next 15 years in his life picking rocks in a North Korean labor camp. God, what are you doing? Lord, this is your plan for me? Where, God, where are you? This is how you treat your servant? And now, friends, just this week, he's been given a platform. He shared the gospel on the National Geographic channel with millions of people around the world watching. You tell me God doesn't have a plan for our lives? I won't buy it. Apostle Paul in Romans 8.28 says that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him. In all things, friends, even if God leads you into the wilderness, we can trust in God's divine plan. We can trust in his sovereignty. John Piper, I came across a quote from John Piper this week. He says, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, and you may be aware of three of them. Isn't that true? Man, we, our view is so small. But in God's sovereign plans and wisdom, he knows what he's doing. And we can trust him. So we need to discern the voice of God from the voice of the enemy. We need to defend with the power of Scripture, the sword of the Spirit. And we need to depend on God's sovereign plan. And that, friends, is how you will stand against the attacks of the enemy. Let me close a word of prayer, and then I'll leave us with our benediction this, this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your faithfulness. We thank you for giving us a basis to stand against the attacks of the enemy, against the lies of the enemy. And Lord, first and foremost, I pray that everybody here knows you as their Lord and Savior, that they might have that personal relationship so they have the power of your Spirit to stand against the enemy. Because without you, Lord, we're in trouble. 
But Lord, thank you for the resources you've given us. Thank you for the word of God, which is our weapon to stand against Satan's attacks. God, may we hold fast to the word of God. May we trust in your promises. When the enemy sends his lies to deceive us, to tempt us, to destroy us, God, may we respond by standing fast on the word of God and the promises you've given us. Thank you, Jesus, for this great example that you gave us when you faced the adversary so that we can do the same thing. I pray a blessing on each of my friends now, Lord, as they head out into this world this week. The enemy's prowling around. He's looking to devour them. But God, may they go in the power of the Spirit with the authority of the Word of God, and may they stand firm when they face his attacks. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And I leave you with this benediction from Romans 16, verse 20. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And so may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen.